trying to tell you that you have to watch out. Things can happen. Something happened to me. Something happened to me. God damn bad story, isn't it, Hawk? Leland, leave her alone. Don't do that. She doesn't like me. How do you know what she likes? I miss her so much. I miss her so much. I miss her so much. <laughs> coming and we're back hi i'm murphy uh tom are you still tom i'm still in mourning brother ben <laughs> i know filmstruck just ended which was a wonderful service that's now gone and uh, tom and i are having uh, classic movie uh withdrawals yes it's horrible we've been uh 
really for me the last week or so it's been on an endless loop to try to just maximize every second of filmstruck and i feel bad because i've had it we've had it for like months and months and months and i kind of took it for granted but this last week i was watching movie after movie after movie so what were the last couple of movies that you watched uh, well, the last one I really liked was my favorite one of all time was The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I'd never seen before, which is a Power Pressburger movie. Very good. So I watched, I, I mean, I went through a whole bunch. Like, so I think I was watching the Marple series uh, from uh, 1960s, oh, Margaret Rutherford. <laughs> have we mentioned her yet? Yeah, classic anyways, we have, yes. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, I went on to bang, Singing in the Rain. I watched all the classics, but uh, farewell, Filmstruck. We hope to see yes, you again. Yes, it's sad. I watched uh, Truffaut's Bed and Board, and then I watched Orpheus. Which is the uh, I think it's Jean Cocteau um, picture from 1950. Oh yeah, a lot of Lynchian Part 18 or Part 17 comparisons, right? Well, yeah. What's most interesting is that uh, the there's this room, this bedroom of the main character and his wife, and it acts as a portal. The mirrors in the room let you go into this other world, but the floor pattern of the bedroom is the floor pattern of the Black Lodge. The Chevron pattern. Yeah, so you think Lynch saw that back in the day and just ripped it off, lifted it? I think he was Good at idea! A- <laughs> File that away! <laughs> I think he was at AFI in the early 70s, and that's probably one of the films that they showed, and it might have stuck with him before he shot Eraserhead, but that was a good film, and then I think the final, final movie, I watched a little bit of Two Men in Manhattan, that French film by Melville. Yeah, Melville. I got into Melville a lot. That was good. Cinematography, the music, it was like great black and white, like James Wong House, uh, Sweet Smell of Success. Great film. And then the final, final movie I watched, The the Omega Man. Dude, I tried to watch (laughs) it. It was terrible. (laughs) I I mean, I couldn't get to them when they were like publicly flogging him or whatever in in the town square, like about in the middle of the movie. That's as far as I got. Yeah, but Chuck Heston is endlessly entertaining to me and his toothy grin and his manly chest, which he's always uh, revealing and uh, his overacting. Uh, And it's but actually it's got a great soundtrack. It's actually got a good score. Yeah, wasn't he an earthquake? Was he in Earthquake? Oh, God, that's a great movie. With, Dude, the uh, thing was, he was up at the Hollywood Reservoir. It's like when the when the water flooded from the reservoir and went down, that's right where I live. I'd be dead. Actually, I would be probably by the river. But You uh, would yeah. be Walter Matthau in Earthquake, in that little cameo in that bar with the pimp outfit. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, that's, that's how you'd be doing. Trying to pick up, sure. pick up uh, Victoria Principal in her, uh, her afro. Yeah, well, hopefully that never comes true. But uh, we're here to talk about, not film struck off fairly well, but we're here to talk about uh, Twin Peaks, of course. And uh, what episode are we doing today, Tom? We're back to our series rewind, and we're doing part twelve. Let's part rock. Part twelve. Part twelve. Let's rock. We had a lot of uh, aspirations for this episode. What were you thinking going into seeing this for the first time? Well, it was actually it was a weird week for me because we recorded. We were doing our preview podcast. We would generally do that on the Friday night, and then the show aired on July thirtieth, which was a Sunday night. I actually traveled to Montreal that next day, that Saturday morning. So burnt the minute hour recording a podcast for you and. Uh, with the title being Let's Rock, and I think there were some cryptic tweets, I was expecting something maybe close to what we got in part eight, but I was in a different country. I spent so much time actually trying to find a outlet to actually, or actually a platform to watch the show. Oh, that's right, because there's, there's no Hulu in Canada. No, I wound up getting the concierge gave me her login to her Crave, I think it's called Crave TV or something like that. So I got access, but I actually, the reason I was in Montreal was for a work conference. I actually had to give a presentation that next morning. So we recorded a podcast. Did you go backwards? (laughs) (laughs) No, but it was crazy. I was completely lack of sleep and everything. And I think I was disappointed by the episode because... I remember you being a little bit angry, a little bit miffed. A little miffed. I wasn't. I liked it. Like Jerry running through the woods and stuff or the the field. I thought there were some good parts, really great parts of this episode. And uh, you were just poo-pooing it. You poo-pooed it. Well, it's the whole thing. You still poo-poo? 
No, no, because I just watched it before we, you know, started recording tonight, and I don't think I'd seen it probably since that week. I, I would generally watch a show like four or five times uh, for, uh, you know, during the week before the next show. Um, so watched it again probably for the first time, knowing what's going. And this has happened a couple of times, with, like with part six and part ten, some of the more slower episodes. This one I think is the slowest. There really seems to only be really kind of like five main scenes in this whole hour. Um, of Let's Rock, uh, and knowing what's going on, knowing the whole big picture, I can actually enjoy, because for me, when I'm watching it, when I was, I remember vividly being in that hotel room, I just wanted, like, the next scene to come, the next scene, the next scene. It was like, I wanted something to happen, and, and I was taken out of it by my expectation or my anxiety for, like, some, wanting for something to happen. So I think it took away from the entertainment value. But it's a solid episode, but not a really a lot happens, but... Um, I think a very good reason is there's no Cooper. One shot of Cooper in this oh, episode. He gets bonked in the head, right? Yeah, he gets bonked in the well, head. Well, I guess, uh, you know, on that note, let's just start this sucker. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we're at the falls. We're past the Rancho Rosa. Let's hit play right now. Everyone yeah, together, we're together if you're crazy enough to follow along with us. Well, another thing with this episode, which I started uh, thinking about, uh, because, you know, Lynch had all this leeway of how to cut the show. I mean, they had the script, but... It being like a really a nine episode script that was, uh, you know, elongated to 18 episodes, I think they moved some pieces around. And there's a great example in this episode, I think, where Cole's in his hotel room, that whole scene with the French woman, and Albert asks him at one point what time it is, and he says, like, 11.05. And then I think the next scene is a Dr. Amp scene, and he's like, it's seven o'clock, you know, and he rings the, you know, hits the gold shovel or whatever. So they're playing with time. I don't think there's anything to do with like the, um, the, 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 the shifting timeline. I just think they're editing choices. So I think he crammed this up. He knew this was going to be a transition episode. But what I want to say is this feels like a mini fire walk with me episode because we have here in the beginning, we're about to be in Buckhorn. We have this tale of the blue rose this uh, tammy's being inducted into the blue rose and we have only a cameo of agent cooper and firewalk with me he had a pretty much an extended cameo we have a convenience store scene which is iconic in firewalk with me and it's pretty much the best scene in this episode in my opinion with sarah freaking out we also have um uh the, the maybe the french woman could be like a stand-in for lil um we have a corrupt law official uh, warden murphy who gets shot in the head grotesquely just uh, just like uh, deputy clipped in firewalk with me that close-up of his brain spot so this really fe- and then of course audrey the expectation of laura palmer everyone wanted to see how laura would move and act in firewalk with me and i think it really went against expectations and we get audrey in this episode for the first time and i don't think anyone could have expected what we got with her scenes well, it's all very compelling, but shouldn't you just like you know staggered this out throughout the entire podcast? Because you kind of gave it all away. Now, should we done? We're, We're done. Kind of right? sum up that no, no. <laughs> no, but it does. It really does. And, and the musical cues. I mean, maybe this is what Lynch is doing here. Is he knew that this one wasn't going to have the the potency of some of the other, especially part eleven. There was a lot of frenetic action in part eleven. Um, a lot of moving pieces. A lot of information. Maybe he knew this one was going to be a little slower and he made it deliberately kind of like a fire walk with me feel knowing what we're going to get in part 15 and part 17 and ultimately 18 fire walk with me being so important to the narrative that maybe this is a little pocket fire walk with me narrative that he decided to cram all these particular bits into this particular episode because the musical choices as well is very heavy in fire walk with me that is interesting this is kind of like a microcosm of fire walk with me you and i've never talked about that before it's a good revelation i like that 
Well, here we are. We're watching yeah, uh, Tammy like... get inducted uh, into the, the Blue Rose Task Force. Lots of backstory here. Yeah, and one of the interesting lines that Albert says is, is that once he mentions that Blue Buck, well, which was you know, referenced in the original series, um, ended uh, due to some government uh, rigmarole or whatever, that uh, the Blue Rose Task Force came into being. And what he talks about is them, their reason for going into these cases is because they were the unresolved cases from the Project Blue Book. But he said that the team was created to start to get answers that could not be reached except by an alternate path that they've been traveling on ever since. So I thought the line, an alternate path, was a very curious choice because, you know, an alternate path, I mean, does that connote that they're really kind of in the Philip Jeffries, Major Briggs kind of, you know, role here of like not dealing with presumed realities? You're saying like the time shift is what you're alluding to here. This, well, but this an alternate of... path, like, I mean, well, not per se the alternate like timeline that we're getting, but that maybe the, the cases like the Lois Duffy and God knows what other cases that we're dealing not with just tulpas and doppelgangers and Bob and Judy. Dreaming maybe alternate dreams. paths are passed to alternate dimensions. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, because doesn't uh, Cole or Albert tell Cole, um, at, in part 11 when they're about to go into the zone. Like, do you think there's one in there? So they're privy to these portals, right? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, so that just that line, that alternate path, that they, these, these few chosen people, they are on an alternate path. Could it all be leading to Judy? Is that what this is all about? It's because it seems like the Lois Duffy kind of mirrors what Diane is going through and maybe Sarah is that since the Trinity you know, test explosion that all of the, the fallout of these doppelgangers and tulpas and dreams within dreams, that these are the people that are going and, and they've been tasked to find out what's going on and to maybe come up with some kind of end game. I wonder what the state of the Blue Rose Task Force would be after the retcon. Well, don't we get kind of a glimpse of the final dossier a little bit? That's what I'm saying. I was thinking about Tammy here getting getting inducted and then her handshaking and the whole thing becomes a mystery at the end. And uh, so then is is her duty done? (laughs) Is it over? Like what the, how would that affect things? I wonder. It's a good question. Oh, one thing I neglected to mention about the fire, the mini fire walk with me with this particular episode is also the only time we get Chet Desmond name dropped from fire walk with me is in this scene. I know. Why don't, why don't, we could have seen something about him, I thought. Oh, here comes uh, Diane. Here's a big entrance. We thought something big time was going to happen in this scene. Something. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, she comes through the red drapes, which foreshadows her eventual you know, demise. Um, we don't know exactly what she is at this particular point. We know that uh, Cole and Albert are suspicious of her. We're starting to get suspicious as an audience as well because she's getting these mysterious texts from presumably Mr. C. But... Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I think it was a great setup, a great scene. And then she has the classic Let's Rock. And this is something that um, I think, I, like I don't delivery. know if I talked to. Oh, yeah, she's a great, great delivery. But that scene in Fire Walk With Me where Cooper sees Let's Rock written on the windshield of Desmond's car. And then. Yeah, see, that's why we the, thought this episode was going to have some, you know, otherworldly Lodgian elements. See, do you also, think that she's the Tulpa? Is that why she, is that the catchphrase for the Tulpas? Let's Rock, you know what I'm saying? How'd she know that? Was it just random I, coincidence? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. It's a callback to Firewalk with me. I, well, she kind of looked Tulpa like when she goes, let's, let's rock. He does a little hand movement and stuff. Looks pretty cool. Looks like she's got some Tulpa action, some kind of bizarre. Well, she is something. a Tulpa. Like, what it's they, not just an offhand comment. Like, obviously, there's a connection to Firewalk with me and all the other stuff. Right. And it's also a connection to the Black Lodge with the man from another place. Right. Um, and so a little bit of Black Lodge came out of her when she said that. I, I agree. She's Tulpa. One thing I noticed with her, um, her bracelets, Diane has the two bracelets. I think one's yellow and one is red. But... 
after part 17, when she shows up at Glastonbury Grove in part 18 as the real Diane, is it you? She just has the one bracelet. So maybe the two kind of She lost a bracelet, yeah, in the time. Uh, you know, she the lost duality. The, the dimension, yeah. Oh, okay. Duality. I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, just the duality. Just well, the that's sun. the thing. She's the, the tulpa has two because she's the, the the double. And then exactly. she, the real, she had one. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Okay, well, that's the end of that scene. Here we are in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> There's Jerry. Jerry. He's coming out. Finally. He's been gone for how long has he been gone, you think? Harry's running through the woods. He looks very happy to see daylight. I think we saw him a couple episodes prior where he was having issues with his foot. And and now he's finally escaped, emerged from the woods. And Did the little foot stop. Ow, 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 ow. Every time he like, <laughs> hits him, runs on him. Oh, he just fell. Oh, he just fell. Now we're in the convenience store. And this is something that I just discovered. The name of this convenience store. I want, I'm going to hold off on it here until you see... Um, the checkout girl who was at the Twin Peaks Festival, I believe. Her name That's is right. Zoe something. Look at the name of the actual uh, <laughs> convenience store and tell me what you think about that. You'll see it in about a second here. But um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention about the previous scene with Diane or with uh, Tammy after she gets inducted or during her induction, the musical cue. It's I think an original Angelo composition. I don't think I've heard it anywhere else. Fantastic. We thought maybe uh, she's going to be doomed. Like was, there's a, there's a foreshadow. Well, yeah, because she's she's framed before yeah. the the curtains as well. Curtains. Di- yeah, and we thought someone in the Blue Rose Task Force was, uh, Task Force was going to die, and I thought maybe it would be Tammy. But knowing she's Lynch's muse, you know, go figure. Okay, do you see the name? Yeah. Carries. <laughs> Carries. That's very interesting. Good, call isn't it? There, How do we yeah. miss that? Well, it's spelled with a K. I think that was a little confusing. But yeah, we never look because her hair covers up the patch most of the time. So Boy, she's in the lodge here. She's in the lodge. I mean, what's with the turkey jerky? What's what's going on here? Okay, so here's what I think maybe is going on here is that we haven't seen Sarah since part two, right? This is the first time we've seen her since uh, I thought she we, was watching. Hawk? I thought Hawk went and visited her. Is that later on? No, this is right after this scene. Uh, okay, yeah. So we haven't seen her since she was watching oh, right. Marlon Perkins' Animal Kingdom. And uh, she was freaking out, or she she sensed something. This is when Cooper was flying through space, and we thought he was going to show up in the Palmer House. That didn't happen. But um, so this is the first time we see her. So we think there's a subtle shift going on in the the time frame here, the timeline. So maybe with Sarah coming to this store, noticing that something is different, that she well, is. Well, she noticing. asked, "Is it smoked?" I think she kind of maybe went about the little black oh, lodge yeah. smoke. Yeah, the living map. There's smoke. But I think she notices that something is different and then maybe seeing Carrie's and seeing a girl who kind of evokes a little bit of Laura, the bangs and fire walk with me, that is setting off maybe the Judy bug in her or something that's causing her to freak out. That And this being a convenience store and saying that men are coming, I think, and Sarah always being spooky, that she is sensing that something is different and now there's a trigger. This is the first time that we're seeing Sarah actually freak out. And I think this is her moment of crises because from this point forward, whenever we see her, She's in full like Judy mode, full like evil mode. So this is the transition, and it's so the inhabitation of she's getting inhabited by Judy, a Judy bug, or maybe the Judy bug is setting off on her, or it's fully, you know, it's totally taking her over. Perhaps. Maybe that's what it is. It's finally. Like, I think you had said at some point that maybe like it was latent for all these years, and something was triggering it. Maybe it was Cooper escaping the lodge, the timeline shifting, um, and now just being within a convenience store seeing the Carrie, maybe Judy knows who Carrie is, but Sarah's not conscious of, and because she doesn't know exactly what's going on. She just knows that something is off and she's like talking to herself and muttering that I think this is all like a continuation or an evolution of the Judy bug that is inside of her because she's not the same after this again. 
Yeah, like in any other puzzle box show, you would get like eventually like a bottle episode, which would show us what the fuck has been going on with Sarah. But uh, we're never going to get it. We'll never know. No, we can allude to it's it. Lynch. Yeah, we, we have to. I mean, we're st- yeah. <laughs> we're starting trying to put this together. All these little mini puzzle pieces. I mean, here it is, like a year and a half later, almost, and we just noticed this convenience store is named Carrie's. Go well, you noticed. That's a good call. It's very good. What'd you, did you, get, did you freak out before. when you figured that out? When did you figure that out? Just tonight when I was Last watching time, yeah. it, you know, I just I watched it cl- more closely and it's like, it was just staring me right in the face. Well, but I don't think I recall reading this anywhere. So. That might be the clue. You, that, yeah, no one's mentioned that. That might be a little clue in here. That's interesting. I, I think it is. The episode. Well, here's another thing with Carrie's is that maybe it's also related to or foreshadows Judy's, Eat at Judy's. Like this establishment, this you know, it's not a, a restaurant like Judy's is, but we have Judy, uh, Judy's Diner, where Carrie works. So you know, it, it could kind of fit into that somehow. I mean, with this being Lynch and Frost, like it's never going to be you know overt. There's not going to be any kind of you know answer directly given to us. But there are connections, I think, between this convenience store, Judy within Sarah, Carrie Page, and maybe where she, where she works at in Odessa. Yeah, so here we are at Harry Dean. The uh, he's talking to one of his uh, tenants. Is this, this is just another too... firewalk with me illusion, right? Well, just him being in the scene in the Fat Trot trailer park. Do you but... think a Chalfon has ever lived at this trailer park, Tom? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe uh, Alice Tremont is uh, just uh, you know biding her time, waiting in the wings for uh, the timeline to shift so she can move into the Palmer uh, residence. Maybe. Yeah, maybe there's like a chip chow font. Like there's a different chow font. Just there. There's a whole maybe there's many chow fonts, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean. I'll have to see more chow fonts in season four. Okay, here we are. Oh, here's the one scene of a Coop. This is the only <laughs> image we get of Cooper in this episode. <laughs> and it's like just, what, 18 seconds? Yeah. And he does nothing but get in the head with the baseball. Although the baseball, I must say, it's like a, it's obviously not a real baseball. It's no, very soft. Uh, yeah. yeah. You can tell. Yes, it is soft. I think, is I, it think Kyle should, I think Kyle should have been fully socked in the head. Oh, there he goes. That's yeah, like right a wiffle there. ball. And also something we haven't talked about. We've gone through these series rewinds, I think since part nine, there's been no Mr. C as well. So that, that, that absence of evil or malevolence uh, from his character in this arc of episodes from nine through like, you know, 12, I think hurts more of the darker nature of the show because of uh, the lack of his presence. Yeah, it does feel like the like you know they have the big storyboard and they have all like you said moving scenes around and whatnot editing like this is like just a episode that has a lot of the extra scenes they go well let's put them all here in twelve right because really the, the Sarah it... stuff really really carries it and here we are uh, Hawk is at at the Palmer house walking to check on Sarah this is like one of my favorite scenes I, I there it is I oh there's the... the fan dude the fans coming through oh oh. But I also love the ambiance. Unfortunately, when they shot this exterior, it was an overcast Ooh. day. It really evokes the pilot episode. Uh, it wasn't a sunny day, and it really kind of adds to the, the, the mood of the scene. And this is just a fantastic scene between her and, and Hawk. I love this scene. And here she is. She's not this the character we just saw in the convenience store in this, in, at Carrie's. She now is like kind of changed over. She is in Do you think she's drunk now? She said the booze, and when she loses the booze, then she starts freaking out. But she's the, she, the booze keeps the demons away? Well, I mean, it does for us all, doesn't it? But um, no, I think that she's always probably perpetually drunk, but she seems more uh, malevolent here, more kind of like a Leland yeah. Bob, like a Sarah yeah. Judy, um, just in her interaction. She knows who Hawk is, but that something is, is within her. There's a darkness, a presence, especially with the ceiling fan, um, uh, the mood of the scene, the, the, the mysterious clanking of the bottles. The <laughs> Dude, you hear there. the clanking? She gave the, the she gave a complete like comic like double take with her eyes. Like, oh, what's there? Like, that was really, <laughs> uh, I didn't notice how obvious that was. 
<laughs> well, that I mean, come on. There's something in there. There's someone in there. Who is it? It wasn't just the bottle just falling over on its own. What's going on here? Dude, I love that line. It's a goddamn bad story, isn't it, Hawk? That's fucking awesome. That's one of the best lines of the whole series. Well, here's a question for you here is wow. that with with Lynch and Frost, um, not wanting to be not wanting to be redundant and really not wanting to reveal the killer of Laura in the original series, but having to and then concocting a way of of of, of doing it in, in, a, in a fashion that is horrific and mysterious as they did with Leland and Bob that they didn't want to go ahead and, 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 you know, cover, you know, that line again, basically, uh, because they didn't want to do it, you know, in the first place. So what if in this series, and that may be why Leland or Ray Wise's presence is so minimal in season three, but that they're now, it's, you know, putting the evil, ascribing the evil to the Sarah character. And maybe that was something that, not that they originally wanted to do, but something that um, uh, is, is different, obviously. But the, the fact that Bob is within Mr. C and is only a presence within Mr. C, and we've got the mysterious Judy, that scene we just saw feels like a Bob Leland, like a Bob in Sarah. Like, especially with the electricity and the ceiling fan, is that maybe that we're seeing, like, a different timeline, a shift. I know Bob's within Mr. C, but something makes me feel that there's a Bob presence in that household. Well, obviously, it's a portal, dude. <laughs> it's a portal for evil. We never saw the painting that uh, Chalfont or Mrs. Tremont gave Laura that put up there, but obviously the, the, the lodge has taken over that house, I would say. Well, no, I, we Almost think subjectively, that, right? I, I think it is, but I... I the, the fact that Sarah really is, even though she doesn't have a ton of screen time, she really is. I mean, I think she's even more evil than Mr. C, uh, darker than Mr. C. Uh, I think so, Tom. We saw her take her face off and take some people's <laughs> heads off. I think that she would win in a fight between Mr. C any day. She is Judy, I think. So, but okay, so just let's go back in. Let's go back in time to the spitball sessions that we'll, you know, we're not privy to. But Lynch and Frost are concocting this story. And they're like, okay, we got to have a darkness and evil a presence. We had the Leland, the Bob thing. We have, you know, Bob within Mr. C. What, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do with Sarah and the Palmer house? Well, they went down this road. That Sarah Palmer, who like, my baby, my baby, you know, her daughter, her precious daughter is killed and her husband was raping spooky. her, molesting her. And spooky, she's spooky. Sarah. But she is now the evil. She's the presence. Like, why are they going down that, that, that road? Not to be contrarian, why are they going down this road to make – Sarah, is it because, because she's su- she has so much pain and suffering, Tom? She's the easiest host, and so obviously, well, what if? And she's not she's not evil. She's not malevolent out doing evil things. She's been inhabited by Sarah, right? I mean, by Judy. So Sarah's still in there right. crying, going like, "Help me!" Like and get out. She's 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 in the sunken place, but she's in she's there. In the sunken place. But it's mostly yeah. I wouldn't say she's, but she is the the big mythic evil. But she's not. I wouldn't think that the Sarah Judy within. I mean, is she pulling the strings of the show? Like, did she did she have a part in like getting Laura sucked back into the lodge in seventeen when they were walking through the Orpheus uh, woods? Like, is she, or is she just a victim? Maybe going back to the original series and watching parts of it, or maybe all of it, Lynch and Frost, and, and with Firewalk with Me, that Sarah was complicit. She knew. I mean, especially someone as, as spooky as, as her. I mean, she knew what was going on. And what is the, the price, the penance of that is that she herself is is compromised. She is is touched by the devilish one somehow, whether it's her own madness. That's <laughs> well, dude, she ate a Judy bug. Guilt. It's not her fault, Tom. She ate the Judy bug. She was just having a nap. You know, she was eight or 10 or whatever it was, 12. 
and she swallowed the chitty bug, so she can't help it. But there's no definitive answer in that in the series with that. We know that from the book, and we can kind of make a leap here because of what's behind her face, but Lynch doesn't give us a direct answer. But there might be strains of her role in the Laura's you know, ultimate murder that the the guilt or maybe there was a latent Judy bug in her is you know is, is now responsible for this this darkness that we're seeing in, in season three and uh, and I see I like that because it's more about I, the fire walk with me really dives into the abuse angle and what it was like for Laura living in that house and the incest and the the trauma of that and everyone's role in it and and that we didn't really get in the series and we don't really touch on it in season three we're talking about the original series but we don't touch a lot of it in season three because Laura's hardly mentioned but we see the ramifications through the evolution of Sarah what she's dealing with I don't think this is just you know her brain being eaten away by guilt and whatnot but I think it's a part of it but I also think that we have Bob on one timeline inhabiting Leland and we have Judy inhabiting Sarah in another timeline. And it seems like there can be multiple timelines and the end game is to get Laura Palmer because of what she represents, the goodness within, uh, you know, which emanated from the fireman. Well, if, uh, if Sarah is Judy and then she's going out like in the the truck, you guy, maybe she's kind of like Dexter. She's going out kind of doing some good every once in a while. She killed some bad guys. She doesn't just kill good people. that was not premeditated. I mean, she just, I mean, that guy was, you know, it's despicable human being. It was a great reveal for the audience, but uh, I don't think that she's a serial murderer like kind of Leland. I don't think she's going through pages of Flesh World looking for, you know, people who look like her Laura, but, uh, or her, her Chuck Hughes or what have you. She probably it, killed it, probably it, at least a dozen or so people just by random chance, just by walking through town like that, like in the last 25 years, just because she's, if she's, she's had Judy in her the whole time. Like well, you know, if, if if she wants to be a serial murderer with the you know with the Judy bug in her and killing all these truck use, I mean, she's living in the right town because the, the police in this town, at least in season three, are not very Completely good. Incompetent, at, no. yeah, incompetent, yeah, right, yeah. It's just running amok up there, yeah. The drugs. Okay, here we are with Ben right. and uh, yeah, uh, Sheriff Truman talking about bikes and keys. Did but you enjoy this, this scene? Uh, I did like because it's Ben, it's Frank, it, it's it's a long scene, but. Um, um, I love the the look of all the great northern scenes. They seem to be at night. I love all the night scenes in season three. Just it evokes. Uh, maybe it's because it evokes the original series and uh, the, the cinematography. Uh, the daytime scenes really don't do that, you know, as much for me. They seem more kind of the digital. This almost looks like it could be shot on film. So the aesthetic I love, but just I love Ben like vacillating between the good and the bad. Not that he's, you know, we're seeing much of the the bad element. Maybe. Other than Ashley Judd's character being, you know, being him being tempted by, but I love just his role in this scene. But here's the interesting part about this: the key, the room three fifteen key that he gives to Frank. Now, this is another thing I to give it to Harry. I was watching or to give it to Harry. I'm, it's a well, nostalgia. No. I was like, it's kind of, that was nice. It was a nice gesture right. by him to give to ultimately give to to Thought Harry. Thought Harry but, might enjoy it. Yeah. Do you remember in part seventeen when Cooper asks? Harry for the key or asks Frank for the key like when all the shit after the Bob bubble yep. he asks him for the key and Frank goes like how how do you know do you know what Cooper says what he says Major Briggs hmm. Major Wait. Briggs what? knew yeah it, how do, I, I missed that too or, or maybe we talked about it before and we just kind of slipped our minds but Major Briggs knew the key would play a role in season three and that Frank would ultimately have it and somehow that was communicated to Cooper. 
So this opens up a huge like you know, web of all kinds of theories and speculation that we're probably going to dive into a future podcast on. But I think what that means is, and in addition to his fingerprints being found at all those different crime scenes over the years, is that, and his body never aged, that Briggs was doing the time jump from 1989 to the present day, trying to find where Mr. C was, trying to connect all these dots to get to that point in part 17 to get Cooper ultimately to that doorway, which would lead to the one Arm man, which ultimately would lead him going back in time to saving Laura, which ties in to Cole's revelation to Albert that Briggs, Cooper, and Cole came up with a plan that would lead to Judy. That's what Briggs is doing. That whole thing is all about Judy. And he knew everything that was going on in season three. So when we're watching the scene in Ben Horn's office, he's like omniscient. There is, there's a head. There's a, the, uh, a, a, a Briggs head floating in the background that we can't see. That's watching it. Well, why didn't they put the fucking Briggs head in there? I would have loved to see that, Tom. I know he's in that room. That's a great like. Is he the hum? No, not, Maybe Garland had a wonderful you know singing voice. <laughs> he's an acapella. He was like a soprano. Don't like, you think he would have drops. a great? He's fourteen. He would. He would have a great, yeah. <laughs> he would have a great. He's very bass, yeah, baritone now. He's kind of like Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life, like uh, trying to help out Jimmy Stewart Cooper. Yeah. But he should have you know, picked, probably... picked a better subject, I think. He would probably have a great singing voice. Like, remember that scene in Stir Crazy where they're in jail and the big, like, you know, mysterious, like the the ogre, that serial killer was that huge guy, bald head, but he was actually like an opera singer and had this great, beautiful, like, you know, uh, like a soprano voice. Do you remember that scene? Uh, yeah, I think that maybe that maybe break. That's it. That's, I think he would have a great like soprano. We like, figured he talked, it out. Like, you know, I thought it was uh, Senorita Dido singing that song in the in the walls of the Great Northern. <laughs> Scarlet, sweet, sweet. But yeah, voice. so Major Briggs is a presence. His head, blue rose that we saw. In but she, but dude, if he knew everything, Tom, like, wouldn't he know that uh, if he gets to be omniscient and see the future, he'd know that Cooper's going to fuck this up. So why shouldn't he uh, even trust him? <laughs> no, it leads all the way up. His role. <laughs> well, Come on. His role ends when Cooper puts the key in the door in the Great Northern Furnace Room. Then it's it's Cooper time. It's up to Cooper. Yes. So it's up to that point. All right. Well, he could have picked somebody better. But here we are. Uh, here's. Uh, <laughs> Lynch with his uh, little friend here. Any, any thoughts on the, the meaning of this uh, this scene here? It's just more Lynch character scene. development for Agent for Gordon, right? That's all it is. Uh, well, I just think it just strikes his fancy, like Lynch as a uh, like a writer slash filmmaker, and he wh- whoever concocted this scene. This is uh, Lynch. Who else would concoct it? Well, Frost is like, if we're gonna do a complete throwaway scene with this huge gorgeous <laughs> model where she uh, dotes all over you and. Makes you seem like a virile young man. Don't you think any other director that threw this scene into this show that we would be like completely indulgent? We'd be slamming like, you know, people, Tarantinos of the world and whatnot, putting themselves in here. This is what he, this is his aesthetic. He loves these slow, drawn out scenes. And it's delicious. He's ogling her. He's completely ogling her. She's obviously enjoying being ogled as well. Trey Sheik! Trey Sheik! I think that he is deliberately the, the choices that he's making in the scene. Like someone like me, when I was, he likes to this, watch Tom. He does like to watch. He does like he's to a voyeur. Watch. We're all voyeurs, oh, but um, he knows that the audience wants to get to the next bit, get to the next scene. What, what does Albert have to say? Albert is there with some crucial information and he spends five minutes 
waiting, <laughs> you know, for this woman to get up, put her lipstick on her shoes and all to get to this is him and his assistant. So he's kind of people would say he's trolling the audience, but I don't think that he's doing it. It's like it's I think comedy he's bit. satisfying himself. It's a comedy bit. Yeah. It's like reactions of Albert talking, funny. Yeah. His comedic aesthetic. It's like something where I compare to Hitchcock. Hitchcock's one of his favorite movies is the the trouble with Harry, which you do not like, by the no, way. No, let's not even go there, yeah. But that's his comedy. It's not a he good one. Absurdist. <laughs> <laughs> but he likes that Jacques Tati, you know, slow mise en scene, let it play out in front of the camera. And in fact, Mark Frost, I think the last movie he watched before Filmstruck went down was was Playtime by Jacques Tati. Tati so yeah, they, I saw that. Yeah, they love them some Tati. Yeah, so, you know, hey, I like this scene. I think you're the one we're reversing it because I think I was defending the scene when we first watched it. And you were, I don't think you liked it as much then because you're wanting to get to the action. Well, now I can appreciate it for what it is. Now I know what the whole is. I can go ahead and 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 even the Audrey, the twelve. It's a beautiful symphony, a flirtation, and diversion, Tom. It is, but it's yeah, it's it beautifully yeah. shot, and uh, I, I like the comic sensibility of it. It's not my favorite scene. Um, I would like a little bit more, you know, action and what have you. But I can, you know, respect it for what it is. Me too, friend. Well, there she is. She makes her exit, and uh, here we get a little scene with Albert. He looks very happy. Gordon's very happy walking back <laughs> in that door. Well, I still think- got it. He should have said that. <laughs> this is good. I forgot about this. The whole setup is for this turnip joke, basically. Right? I like the whole, I mean, yeah, he's just holding. She does not react at all. Oh, I like the blink. Who, the Albert blink? No, he like, he stares at him and then like he blinks before he, he says his line. Lynch does. It's almost like oh. he accused himself. To well, he's letting this even yeah. play out as well. And then it, doesn't he say something about, Albert, there are 6,000 languages in, you know, on Earth today. It's like, why? What, is, yeah, what? what does that mean? Well, because the only one that matters is the universal language of love, Tom. Ah, that's what he's very good. And Albert's not getting enough friends. of it. And Albert needs to go find, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Constance. Oh, yeah, here's the incoming to Las Vegas. They're tracking Diane's. How do they do that? I guess they could do anything, right? NSA. They have all those gadgets and whatnot in the motel room. That's what they're all tracking. They're all tracking the servers in Mexico and God knows where else to try to find where Mr. C is and the incoming, outgoing messages between him and Diane. I like Gordon Cole's methods. He's like, you know, slowly interrogating Diane passively instead of like throwing her into a box and like, you know, torturing her. So this is good. I guess practice is better than the other FBI officials and past regimes. Well, here's another thing to think about with Cole is that he really is going to wind and dine waiting. Suspects. What's that? He's going to wind. He wind and dines his suspects. Yeah, that's probably what he's known um, for. Um, I think that uh, <laughs> just what, what he's, I'm sorry. What Cole? Don't apologize. <laughs> we got a fill in this scene. A lot of fill, Tom. A lot of fill. Well, um, I think what Cole is 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 doing as well. Like we we talked about this a lot. Is that we're kind of. You know, bemoaning the fact that they seem to be a little lax in their police work. Um, and I think what, and since Cole is leading, you know, the charge here, 75 strong, that he is really waiting for Cooper uh, to get back to him, whether it's Mr. C that he saw at the Yankton Federal Prison or the Cooper that we find in part 17. He's waiting for a message from Cooper. Because it's what he tells Albert is that this whole plan that they concocted, he knows the shit is going down right now and that Cooper is going to deliver some kind of message to him. And he ultimately does. So I think that's another reason why they're not. They didn't even mention anything because of like, you know, Matthew Lillard's head blowing up and all that stuff. And from the last episode, they they went to the zone. There was no mention. You mean in this episode? The one before, right? Did they go to the zone in part 11? 
Yeah, but what do you mean? Like, they didn't talk about it? Because in- this is happening soon after. There's no mention of, like, well, we did forensics on uh, the Lillard head. It's got, it's got some ectoplasm on it. Like, there's no, like, debriefing <laughs> or, like, trying to figure out what the fuck that just was. There was never uh, any uh, chemical analysis done or at least given to us of what was uh, the Garmin Bazia that Mr. C upchucked in uh, part three. That's what I was waiting for. Yeah, exactly. We talked about that. Too bad Tammy didn't have her, like, her, her camera going. Somebody should have filmed that zone, the portal. I could have gotten yes, some hits right? on YouTube. Yeah, people were interested in that. <laughs> Blue Rose, some other other. Uh, I think you know, they didn't really follow that up either. Seeing Part that, 11? seeing the zone, that would be like a, seeing a UFO if you saw that in real life. I saw this thing, a bright light, floating up in the sky. Well, you know, they, they just they didn't really bother with that. That is something to to consider. Yeah. Is that that whole thing about the dirty bearded man and the zone and the experience in Ruth's body? It just seemed, they seemed kind of like nonplussed by it. Right. And then even Gordon's reaction of like, you know, Lillard dying, like he's dead. It's just, just kind of like just commonplace yeah. and just move on to the next thing. It's like, that's a very traumatic episode of what they experienced. Cole almost getting sucked in, Lillard's head being popped off, the coordinates, Ruth's body, it's all coming together. But, you know, fine Bordeaux, move on. hot French woman. And uh, coordinates. That's it. That's how you have a 45-year uh, career in the FBI. You just got to move on to the next case now. <laughs> Can't sweat too much. Well, we just missed the entire scene of, uh, what's his name? The prison warden getting shot by, uh, what's what their names? Tim Roth. Oh, you mean Chantal yeah. and Hutch. Yeah. 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 Well, they have more screen time than Agent Cooper or Mr. C in this episode. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, he felt like they didn't need to show that, right? Mr. C gave him no. instructions to go ahead and uh, you know kill him. But I think... I think this was discussed in the, the, the DVD, the Blu-ray that came out, uh, that Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee, I think, like, originally their roles weren't as prominent. Well, they're not really prominent, but as big. And I think that he liked their characters, or even I think maybe Tim Roth was kind of goading Lynch to write more scenes for him. And maybe that was one of the scenes. Maybe they decided Yeah, they're that. like A-listers, so they built it out. It was funny. It was good. I like the repertoire. Or rapport. Rapport, as they say. And now we got the Dr. Amp scene. Now, uh, yep, here we are, Dr. Amp. What is this, the first time or the second time we've seen him? <laughs> well, I think it's the third time. The we've third? Seen him. Maybe like the... Ooh, well, kinda, we've I seen him multiple out times. I kind of zoned out. I love, what his, I love his message, but I did kind of tune out after the third rant. Well, here's the thing. I was watching the scene again. I was like, well, why put this back in? It's pretty much rehashing what we got in, I think it was part five. And the scene ends on a line of dialogue, and it cuts almost dramatically because it cuts right to Audrey. But the last line that Jacoby says is um, the ninth level of hell will welcome you. And then bing, cut right to Audrey. So I think this was set up, put in directly for that line to cut directly to Audrey, knowing what we know about Audrey. She really is in some kind of purgatory, Uh, whether Charlie is Virgil and she's, was it Beatrice? Beatrice Portnelli, Portnelli. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Portnelli. Dante's I mean, I, I, I think I read the Divine Comedy like 15, 20 years ago, so it's a little. Uh, I don't think anyone actually read it. We read like the cliff notes in like eighth grade. No, I actually <laughs> bought the Divine Comedy. I read right. it. It's like all these cantatas, yeah. and it's hard to. But I was into it, but I'm not smart enough to really understand what it all means. Did but. you read in Latin? I actually did Pig Latin. Actually. Okay, I read good. it back. Yeah, hey, yeah, do you yeah. think they would have sold how many uh, golden shovels could they have sold at the Twin Peaks Festival? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I would have bought a gold shovel. I would have bought like a little mini gold shovel to, you know, kind of like supplement my uh, cocaine habit. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> your cocaine habit. Yeah, right. All yeah, right. Around the neck, you know, little gold shell, little sure. bit. Oh yeah, the seventies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A little tiny one. Yeah, well, back in the day. Well, my dad was in the record business in the seventies. He did a bunch of cocaine. Worked for Capitol Records, and you know, I'm just carrying on the. I know you for the last years. You've been cocaine <laughs> your entire life, <laughs> and you'd be starting like lemonade crystals or like sugar sweetener, sweet low. Everything. Oh wow, he just is dropping all kinds of f bombs in this. Here it is. Welcome to the ninth level of hell, and there it is. Here's our. Here's Audrey. Everyone's been waiting to see her. And isn't that a great shot? Great this opener. tracking shot. Yeah, it's because she doesn't move at all, pretty much in this scene, which I think is also a nice tell. But I love this slow tracking shot from the side, which starts on Audrey and it comes to Charlie, and then we're basically getting this this normal kind of like you know two shots, you know, with them in their own individual shots. It's very simple, but that, the way to you know to intro into that scene with her character because you he knew they knew that. Everyone was clamoring for Audrey, that this was going to be the first time. So he did it in a very interesting fashion. And I love the setup with, with Dr. Amp's line because no one knows you know, what her situation is. And we're slowly going to find out during this 12-minute and 38-second scene, I think it's 38 seconds, of what her kind of dilemma is and what's going on. And the fact that I think that even right off the bat that we're suspecting that she is not in the real world so to speak and Charlie isn't her real life husband and all of these names and these situations are kind of codes or something that is going on under the construct of either her mind or the manipulation of like supernatural forces whether it be the Black Lodge or convenience store do you think that's really her husband or is it like a psychiatrist from the lodge a lodge shrink I don't think this is real I don't think is that really Billy location is aged horribly that's Justice Jack. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's Charles Justice Jack. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's it. It's been a long time, Tom. Oh, oh, I've been sick for the last couple of weeks, and I get this cough. So if my laugh sounds a little bit off. I'm trying to like you know to suppress this, this 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 cough that's about to come out. But dude, that was very very funny. Yep. Um, here's what I think. Um, what's we're seeing in the series, like outside of this room, with some of the characters like in her world, whether would be Agent Cooper, the man that she loved, or her son, little Dickie Horn, or even Ben Horn, but mostly little Dickie Horn, because he really is, or has the most prominent role of newcomers in Twin Peaks, and I would even say probably has one of the more prominent roles other than the sheriff station in in Twin Peaks proper, that what is going on here? I don't think he represents Billy because um, uh, she is talking, Sherilyn Fenn, Audrey's talking about this Billy character who she's fucking, who she's in love Everyone with. Everyone knows Billy's in the, he's the one with, uh, in the jail cell. It's drooling and he's... repeating. I can see her having an affair I with think... that guy if he gets himself cleaned up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I can see it. Take care of the bleeding gums. Whatever he's got the going on. The subtext of the scene is the plight of her demon child, little Dickie Horn, because when Charlie eventually calls, I think it's Tina, who I don't know if that's Billy's wife or not, but she apparently can tell from their conversation that she tells him something. She tells Charlie something that's, that shocks him. And you can also tell that Tina is telling Charlie to promise him not to tell Audrey. That's what I'm inferring from that scene. And, and he won't tell her and she's freaking out. You're not going to tell me, Charlie. I think, 
it represents what is going on with Dickie Horn, that he killed that child and tried to kill Miriam and whatnot, that somehow Audrey is able to pick up on this vibe, whether she's in the real world or not, and she is just using these layers of whatever this construct is to put a distance between it, but it's, 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 it's penetrating that filter, and that's what we're getting, a lot of like symbolism and subtext of what's going on, I think, related to her world, like outside of this 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 whatever this Charlie construct is. Uh, well, I always thought that when I first saw this show that like, you could have taken the camera and panned down from that phone that he's using and it would not be connected to the wall or be cut. Like he's, just, he's <laughs> not talking to anybody. <laughs> That's a just, toy phone. Yeah. It's not a real phone, Tom. Well, it's a rotary phone, yeah. which don't really exist anyways. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he's got a crystal ball on his desk, and at some point she goes, "Why don't you look into your crystal ball?" And he says, "Well, I don't have a crystal ball." And he's got a crystal but, ball. And yeah. He's got a crystal ball. There. I mean, this whole thing's crazy. He's just like, gaslighting the fuck out of her. He's just the gaslighting demon. That's what he is. So he's like the Charles Boyer, like yeah. uh, Ooh, Charlie Paula. Justice Jack. Paula. Yeah, Paula, this is not Paula. bad. Everything is good. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's what he is. He's just a uh, he's a figment of the lodge. I don't, I don't really understand it. I, I uh, obviously Mark Frost wanted us to believe that this is real. You know that they, he really did. This is the accountant, and they're married, and she's been in and out of the mental institution. But like this scene, it would make you think that this scene really did happen. But I still don't think it did. I think no, it it's didn't. All I think the cul- nightmare. No, I, I think the fact that when she gets to the roadhouse, the culmination of these scenes, getting there, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> I'm so sleepy, but I'll go. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, that like, created a bunch of memes. Like, the I'm so sleepy is really good. Oh, his character in this He's scene. He's great. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. But we hated um, this scene when we first saw it. You really did, right? I did because it just... It, 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 here's the thing with, with this show, and this, this really is the scene that really represents, I think, the, the tough factor of uh, yeah. loving Twin Peaks is if you can get that to this scene and love it then you can go anywhere in this, it in this doesn't series. right it doesn't this is not a conventional narrative this is not um, Game of Thrones this is not Breaking Bad or Mad Men or The Sopranos or whatever is hot and, 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 and great and critically acclaimed right now this is a different type of narrative and Lynch has been doing this pretty much his entire career he's had moments where the mainstream kind of he came close to the mainstream but I think it was more the mainstream coming to David Lynch as opposed to David Lynch coming to the mainstream is that he is more interested in kind of an anti-narrative so to speak and and dream logic and symbols and going with his gut and intuition and all this other stuff and and that's what we get with, with season three. We get moments. We've got a core mystery. We've got a core story. But we have all these different scenes that seem like uh, you know disconnected and not uh, and 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 they don't really have any real beginning, middle, or, or end. Sometimes we start at a beginning and don't have a middle and end. And sometimes we start at an end. Sometimes we start in the middle and we don't go anywhere. And this scene really, really kind of represents that. And I think it's a testament to the, the creators themselves. They're not deliberately trying to. Uh, manipulate or troll the audience. This is what's interesting to them, and it's just unconventional, and it doesn't play to a mass audience. It doesn't play to a lot of the Twin Peaks audience, but it's something that plays, and it's something that endures and lasts and will linger for <laughs> generations to come. It's going to endure by infuriating people for eons, but it is. <laughs> all the, basically, all the Audrey fans are completely, they were pissed, I would say, 80%, right? Well, sure, yeah, but if you can somehow like watch it again, and you know, uh, and wrap your head around what's really kind of going on, and realize that this is all you're going to get. These scenes with Audrey, with Charlie, ultimately the Roadhouse, and just focus on these scenes. I think it's fascinating. I think what he did with Audrey specifically is 
very fascinating because not only it's ambiguous, but um, it fits into the theme of the show with the shifting timelines and the darkness within Twin Peaks, whether it's being manipulated by the lodge spirits or the convenience store, um, that it, it, it thematically ties into the anti-Twin Peaks uh, of what's going on here. And it really is kind of the epicenter of frustration for a lot of fans. And I was certainly one of them, but I've come to appreciate it. And I love what Lynch did on the fly, apparently, with these scenes. I and mean, I think he wrote this at the last minute. You can almost like put Lynch in as a, a Charlie uh, uh, surrogate. Stand in for Charlie. Surrogate. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Or stand in. And Audrey being sure that you. It's the shorthand after 30 years of friendship. Um, and, and Audrey's really playing kind of a version of Sherilyn Fenn and what was going on behind the scenes. That's another fascinating aspect. Well, yeah, and if you accept that this is like a dream hell or whatever she's in, she's that it's not a real a re- reality, then this is kind of like a microcosm. How many minutes is, is are all of her scenes put together? And they almost equal like one episode. I would guess yeah. it's probably about 40, 45 Really? Minutes. 45 minutes? Wow, jeez. Well, anyway, it's like a microcosm of what Cooper's going through. Like they're both stuck in these hell worlds they can't get out of. And Laura Palmer. And Laura, too. Carrie, as well. And Leland's stuck That's back there, too. And Maddie. And uh, that fucker Ray. And probably several other people. And it also could be that what Carolyn? <laughs> what Lynch and Frost were. Phil Jeffries. Going. You got any more names? <laughs> Woodsman. Um, <laughs> Diane. <laughs> I bet they have a good party. They probably have a good bar. They probably know that bar. Probably all of them hanging out. They think well, also, commiserate. don't you think that the original intent was for Audrey to be um, the Annie character, Cooper's love, and being stuck in the yeah. Black Lodge, being taken to the Black Lodge, and that maybe this was a way for Lynch and Frost to reintroduce that idea without, you know, obviously couldn't go back in time and do that, that she was always meant to be um, in the Black the Lodge. The mother of his child. In, this, well, well, <laughs> in a horrible, <laughs> sick way. <laughs> but with th- that's they found a way to, like, come and come. Here's another thing is that Annie, we didn't get Annie, but Annie in the book is in an institution and she's melancholic. And I would assume that there's a, there's a possibility that, that Audrey could very well be in that same situation and this is going on in her head. That's one aspect of looking at that maybe Audrey is an Annie surrogate as well, that they didn't want to bring back Annie, but they're using Audrey because that's what they originally wanted to do. A lot of what they're doing in season three was kind of their own retcon of what they originally wanted to do but were unable to do so because the suits at ABC wouldn't allow them. Now they had creative carte blanche to do anything and I think they were taking some original ideas and and kind of you know, threading them in to season three the way that they wanted to do and Audrey's a perfect example of that. There's a little like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in this scene, right? A little bit? A little tinge? It feels yeah. like this has got a little bit. I mean, he's not fighting back, but it feels like Virginia Woolf, the movie. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That she's Wolf. Liz Taylor and he's, he's Richard uh, Burton. He's, yeah, but he's, uh, Dick Burton. He's more George Siegel. But yeah, he's like, you know what I'm saying? There's a little bit of that in this little feeling. They were just constantly, like, he was kind of the, the she was berating him and just accosting him and beating him up verbally, like, you know, abusing him. But then he turned the tables on her, right? At some point. Oh, they, yeah, there's does. many tables being turned, yeah. Well, he turned, <laughs> turned over, too, as well. Well, here we are with Diane. So here's the big pivotal scene, right? We're going to see something interesting. Is it the all thing? Is it? No, this, this, what, is, what happens here? She remembers the coordinates and she did that like, pneumatic thing. She oh yeah. That, yeah. And she puts it into her phone. She doesn't send it to Mr. C, but she puts it into her phone and it gives her a location, which is Jack Roberts palace. 
or no, is a uh, the Palmer household? What is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, well, you're right. The first time it's tw- it very well maybe Jack Rabbit's Palace. It's Twin Peaks. It says Twin Peaks. So that's the big like end of the show. Basically, is that ah the whole thing with the coordinates, Briggs, Ruth, Bill Hastings, Woodsman, leading us back home, leading us back home to Twin Peaks. And you know, come on, could it really go anywhere else? It had to come back to Twin Peaks. But here's the thing: is it Jack Rabbit's Palace or is it? the furnace room of the Great Northern Hotel. Or is it the Palmer House? Exactly. Is it the Palmer House? Do you think all 12 of us have to use this pneumatic freight like for memory? Like she's using like the coordinates? <laughs> is it like 12 thing? I don't know. I don't know. Who is in the Palmer House with Sarah? Come on. We, we can't. I mean, the what woodsman. is going on in that? Who, Judy, and, uh, yeah, of, Judy and Bob are in the kitchen in the basement and the woodsmen are making making waffles and flapjacks and they're having a whole good time. Whole time. <laughs> so you think that the staircase in the Palmer House is the staircase in the convenience store that they're really one and the same even though we didn't Yeah, they're all hanging out. Yeah, you go back there. They're all just having a second. Like I a, like that too. Yeah. It's like yeah, the backstage, like yeah. It's like the backstage, uh, yeah. yeah it's like the, she was really like pouring drinks, and they were having a, like a sooty party with yeah. uh, all kinds of you know shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, the, her, uh, her double her double take reaction was really funny to see, like like looking right. I know, that was right? really she kind of overdid it. Surprised well, it was, didn't just all he did, did. I mean, all he did is walk around to the back of the house, you know, right? The kitchen it's, window. Another it's thing with the uh, the police work, the poor police work, poor Hawk police work, like, Tom. Yeah. It was obvious that she is lying. Yeah. Something is going on there. Investigate. Do something. But you know. Yeah, probable cause. She could have been, she could have been a hostage-type situation. Kick in the door, wave in the 4-4, Tom. Right. <laughs> right. And you would think of anyone, Hawk, Mr. You know, Nez Perce himself, the one who is really in tune to yeah, all he would the feel it too. spirituality. Yeah, he, he feel a disturbance, feel yeah, in the force. Yeah. I guess the Palmer House is not on the living map, Tom. <laughs> Should be. That's right. It's not. <laughs> well, Judy's on the living map. I know. Well, obviously, he would have been knowing. He would have been, like, camping out. <laughs> see, really, I mean, he could have been, like, you know, staked out in the car, like, drinking coffee in the middle of the night, watching the house to see, like, lights coming on, weird shit happening, screaming, screeching. You hear, can you imagine the neighbors? They probably called a few times. You know, one thing what I thought What the hell? About... What are they making in there? What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> we never got any Palmer neighbors, did we? No. Nice maybe we saw some Palmer I'd neighbors. I'd like to see yeah. who it is. Yeah. They probably got a... Probably moved um, out. <laughs> right. One thing I was going to bring up when we were talking about all that Briggs stuff, because we'll go into further detail down the road, but this is something I had to check, and it was something that I was hoping that Lynch and Frost did, but it, it didn't happen, but... If Briggs was doing all this time jumping and observing, maybe he was changing things. And that was another thing that we all assume that maybe Cooper is the dreamer and, and, and Laura is the dreamer of Odessa. Or maybe she's dreaming certain parts of Twin Peaks. But they're the two primary dreamers. And that's why we're having these shifting timelines and realities. But if Briggs is actually engaging himself in the community of Twin Peaks and God knows where else, that he also is changing reality. So the whole world, whether it's every location that we're seeing, Buckhorn, the Pentagon, Argentina, you know, Twin Peaks, Vegas, that Briggs could very well have been, you know, dabbling or showed up in all these different locations and and have changed the realities there. So the whole of season three, we think about the shifting timeline in Twin Peaks. It could be that the timeline is shifting like all over the place and and has been for some time because of what Briggs has been doing. But what I wanted to summarize or, or sum up with that is that if he knew all these events and could do all these things and he knew Bobby would turn out so well, don't you think that one thing he would do would maybe prevent Bobby by grounding him from going out with Laura that one night in Firewalk with me where he killed the guy? 
Yeah, he could he could have helped him out there. But in part seventeen, where Laura's talking with James, and it's the whole scene for Firewalk with me, and she goes, "Well, Bobby killed the guy. Do you want to see?" And James is like, "Well, why would I want to see that?" I thought maybe in part seventeen, I had to watch it again. That what if Lynch had cut out that line, just that one line, and kept all the other scene? That would have been a huge tell that that she didn't say that line. That would be interesting. That, yeah, that maybe Briggs did ground Bobby that night, and he didn't kill a guy. That is interesting. Hey, do you think that guy tricked that just that just invaded the 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 two ladies at the the booth? He was he the same character from Mulholland Drive? Well, that's Scott Coffee, the great <laughs> Scott Coffee, who's been yeah. in a he lot a great of great cameo in Mulholland Drive. He, had, yeah. he did. Doesn't his, I thought he was Gary Hershberg when I first saw him in two thousand and one? I thought that was uh, that was yeah, one of the was, same. Yeah, I thought not not quite. Yeah. You know, he was the son. Brother is maybe he, uh, yeah, maybe he's uh, Snake Two. Yeah, Snake Two. Electric Snake's brother. Yeah. Um, he's the son of Gay Pope, who was Lynch's longtime assistant for like years and years and years. He was in, I think, Wild at Heart. He got cut out of Wild at Heart. Uh, he got cut mostly out of uh, Mulholland Drive. And I think there was another project he was in that he got cut out of as well. And then he finally got this one scene as Trick. And, and the, so he finally got some screen time or some, at least some decent dialogue. Because I think he has one line in Mulholland Drive. Yeah, I, bur- I burst into laughter when I first saw him in 2001 because I thought he was Snake, <laughs> but he wasn't. <laughs> but his cameo was funny, just the way he was watching and just kind of not saying anything. Yeah. The whole chaos, yeah. Well, here we are at the end of the Roadhouse, the final, final song, Chromatics. Like them, any uh, final thoughts, my friend? Well, what about the conversation with the two uh, ladies? I felt like that, that one was completely forgettable. Like I had not seen that one <laughs> since the first time I saw it, and it meant nothing. I was, like, well, I was trying to figure out, did you, was there any meaning uh, that you gleaned? It, well, I mean, they're talking about like Angela, Angela and Chuck, and people are like, I think the, the, the main guys. No, we didn't meet any of these people. Yeah, but I think, don't you think those conversations are somehow tied into Audrey's storyline? Well, you talked about that because it all just culminated yeah. at the end. And that's really one thing the payoff of the Audrey. Uh, uh, storyline is the end when she does the dance and she the whole great that, I think that made it all worthwhile uh, and then sitting here stuck in the lodge or wherever the fuck she was so but the first installment was a little tough to get through yeah and we've had about we had like what, four or five of those roadhouse scenes right or these conversations that really don't go anywhere were kind of frustrating because they were end of the episode but are they all different also- personalities like Audrey Schizophrenic and like all the different women are here personalities like Sybil I don't know I mean, we, if you what, what we talked about this if you had a, like Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're just transitional like scenes deliberately. Maybe it's a commentary on they're not filler. very. In- <laughs> what you would do filler? <laughs> they gotta be something, right? I'm not I sure. Mean, I'm not sure. Can't... See, I'm not sure. Some of these. I mean, some of these ones I did glean stuff, but I think there's some that maybe don't mean anything. They're not supposed to mean anything. Like this one, I don't think. I don't. I really don't think this one means anything. Well, it's painting the pastiche, the world that we're in. We're seeing all these fucked up young people doing fucked up things. They're having conflicts and this and that. And But it doesn't mean anything more than that, painting the characterization of the town and the, the mental state they're all in. Because no, no one's happy. Like, everyone's sitting there and in those booths. None of them are happy. I mean, one of them is always more fucked up than the other one. But there's, like, usually one that's completely, like, this talk telling some bad story, right? I think that was a perfect a perfect summary. I, that's, I wish I could have said that. I, I agree. I agree. You sold me. Sold. Right, well, Done. There, we there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be what would be your overall? You watched this episode probably the first time since July 30th or you know, shortly uh, thereafter. Dude, the sound was down, Tom, so I got nothing out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the subtitles, but you know what I'm saying? I've got to watch it again with the sound. But it did feel like the not – I mean, it was, a, it was not a bad episode. It's not like – I don't feel like that it's a bunch of the end parts that they scrambled into one. But it was, it was really uh, – I think the Sarah Palmer stuff was the big takeaway. That was the stuff that really – and Audrey, sing Audrey as well. But Sarah was the big, huge awesomeness of this one. How would you 
describe Sarah's role in part 12? Do you think that since this is the first time we saw her in part 12, that this really is that scene in the convenience store was the transition, the crossing over that the Sarah Palmer that we knew from Firewalk with me in the original series no longer exists? Uh, no, I still, I think that the part of her was there. I think that she goes back and forth. I think she's still there. And I, like the uh, fucked up story we're in or whatever, that's her. That was great. That was like a Sarah. Sarah has become embittered and angry, you know, even before Judy showed up because of all the suffering that she's gone through. And she's boozed up and she's alone. And so she's gotten hardened. And she, but it, I think that was a real telling Sarah-like comment, like 25 years later of what her real character would say if she was angry with the world now at this point. So I do think Sarah's still in there. She's a victim, I still think. Because she's not out there doing benevolent business. She's like, uh, just like Laura or Leland. I mean, obviously, I think Leland was way more actively evil. I don't think Sarah's out raping anybody and doing horrible things. But uh, I don't know if I felt sorry for her. But also, just what great acting as well. Scary. I'm afraid of her. I would not want to be babysat by her if I was a child. Terrifying. <laughs> the next time we see her is during that whole loop scene where she's watching the boxing match. Yeah. So she's stuck, I mean, she's in... A loop or that or the house. Well, it's Maybe a metaphor whole... for emotional tragedy. When you get stuck, you have an emotional trauma. Sometimes you can get stuck in a loop. You can't get out of it. You know what I mean? Well, maybe we're thinking the taking the wrong like track with that and focusing on the character and not the house. Maybe it's the house which is becoming stuck. Because well, it is. Yeah, I think it's the house. Actually, the idea of the Judy being the extreme negative force that that Cole ascribes to Judy in Part Seventeen, um, I think really what the extreme negative force is and and the au revoir of Twin Peaks isn't Judy or Bob. It's the Palmer house and the horrors that lie within. And um, what we're seeing ultimately here in in, in the next episode, I think it's part 13, with the loop is that the the transition from Sarah, maybe the, the Judy bug being reacted or a timeline shift, that the house itself is now like is starting to grow in essence and power or something or in darkness and that the 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 loop that is happening in town is emanating from from within the Palmer home and is extending out through the town and maybe throughout the world. Yeah, so they're going to slowly drive the entire town like mad and psycho so they're all psychotically killing each other like in Castle Rock that show with Stephen King show and so that once the 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 evil quotient is like at 99% then like the the lot the, the just the whole entire Palmer House disappears, moves on to the next town to read more. Well, that's a good point. But an interesting uh, uh, side note to that and a, and a contrast is within that extreme negative force of the Palmer home, there still is after all these years, and it makes sense because Laura is, you know, Sarah's daughter, that she would still have photographs and the iconic homecoming, home, homecoming photo is still there. And when all the shit goes down in part 17, even though it's happening 25 years prior, somehow Sarah is privy to that and she starts smashing the photo, you can't kill. There is some positivity within that home. And maybe that's what's going on if Sarah represents Judy, that she isn't trying to smash and kill the, you know, her daughter, but it's the representation of the fireman. Like the contrast to Judy, the good to her evil, that that's what she's trying to kill. And it's still within the Palmer home. And maybe that acted as some kind of deterrent or beacon to the events of what's going on, not only in the Palmer home, Palmer home, but in the community itself. It's like Laura Palmer. She's hovering over the damn community in during the credits. So, you know, Laura is the one, whether she's a small portrait or this, we live inside of a dream, big head Laura. She is the essence of of Twin Peaks, and she is the definition of the light. 
Yeah, uh, we didn't see any pictures of Leland on the wall. <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> I would have loved that one, that great shot of like, next to the urn. Remember, like uh, during his wake yeah. in the original series, they had the one. They had a Leland picture and the Laura picture. I would have loved to see that. Leland I just see one of like Sarah and, uh, or Leland and Sarah dancing, like you know. <laughs> that would have been good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have been good, my friend. Thanks for uh, tuning in, everybody. 